Welcome to this week's Shelf Healing Work and Life, where we're going to chat with Kat Mitchell and Dan Holloway all about the role of accessibility in the workplace and surrounding topics. I'll ask them to introduce themselves a little bit. So Kat, if you'd like to go first. Hello, my name is Kat Mitchell. I'm a lecturer in creative writing and publishing at the University of Derby. Uh, Before working there, I worked in publishing. Uh, Most of my time was spent at Penguin Random House UK in London, working in marketing and publicity. Um, And at the moment, I'm doing some research into disability and the workplace. Brilliant. And Dan? Hello, I'm Dan. I am currently an administrator at the University of Oxford. I overlap with Kat in the publishing world. I'm I'm the news editor for the Alliance of Independent Authors. I do, I've been doing a lot of disability advocacy and activism in particular around the financial services sector for over a decade. I had sort of given up on publishing because I thought it was a lost cause. So it's it's great that there, there is work going on on accessibility there. I also do a lot of work in the University of Oxford on accessibility in the workplace with slightly more success than people have in publishing, but not much. <laughs> Well, as you can see, this should be an excellent discussion panel focusing on the role of accessibility in the workplace. I think we should probably start off by discussing what we mean by accessibility in the workplace and how that affects people. Personally, for me, I I take both boxes of I have a, a chronic life impacting condition, yay me, and I, I have I have a mental illness. So accessibility for me, it's quite important. Certain things are easily available for me, and the signposting to exits is very very important. And good maps and layouts of buildings is is vital. Basically, otherwise, I'm not going in a building. I'm very sorry. So that's just personally from my perspective. But in a more general way, accessibility in the workplace covers a whole host of of different things. Yeah. And I think, yeah, same for me. I think there's kind of the physical and mental health conditions all intersecting, making me and many people, you know, complex individuals who need a a lot of different accommodations. Um, So, you know, it's, it's things like physical accessibility. So being able to access physical spaces, actually get into spaces and, and use them in the same way other people would. Virtual or digital accessibility. So being able to access content, you know, caption videos, alt text on images, that kind of things. So it's hard to kind of define accessibility actually in a really simple sentence, isn't it? Because it just, it covers so many different aspects. Yeah. Yeah. So I think accessibility for me is about ensuring that we can, we can use things with about the same amount of energy it takes everyone else to use things. That was brilliant. So, yeah. <laughs> so that that's oh. one of the things. And in terms of the workplace and how it's done, I think there is a tendency to, uh, that you both said to homogenize accessibility. So our events, so we were talking about this beforehand, our events page, um, it's great. It has an accessibility thing on, you can see whether University of Oxford events are accessible or not. It says, is this event accessible? Yes or no. Um, and that is extraordinarily hard to navigate. And I think that's something that we'll probably be talking about a lot. And you've both alluded to is navigation and how you, how you know whether the accessibility requ- requirements you have match the accessibility requirements that someone thinks they are giving. And that's, it's when a mismatch occurs that things become really distressing because like you said, Rebecca, if you don't have what you need, you you don't want to go there. What you don't want is to turn up and find that what you thought was going to be the case isn't. Yeah, there is nothing worse than 
needing to know where like bathrooms are and exits are and rocking up and having no idea where anything is because it makes it makes already a stressful experience of maybe going somewhere to do presentations or job interviews or just to meet people in a new environment. It makes life so much harder and it's so unnecessary. It would be so easy to put a map somewhere, you know, or signposts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I think, you know, what, what Dan was saying about, um, is this accessible? Yes or no speaks to a wider issue about how people view disability and how they view it quite, quite narrowly. Mm. And I think that isn't helped by things like, you know, toilet signs for disabled people just having someone in a wheelchair as the symbol. And when you talk about disability in the workplace, people often say, oh, there aren't disabled people here. Yeah. Or, oh yeah, our, our kind of workplace is, is, you know, accessible to disabled people because we've got a ramp and because we've got a toilet that's accessible legally to people in wheelchairs and that's enough. And you have to sort of say, well, disability is bigger than that. It's not just people in wheelchairs. It's not just visible disabilities. Mm. There are a range of disabilities that we have to think about. One that I always, I always noticed just because I, I had a friend who was hearing impaired. The amount of places that say they're accessible and then they don't have hearing loop systems. Mm. So she's like, I can't hear anything because her hearing loop doesn't click into anything. And everyone's got so much tech around that if you try and find something that maybe they've got it, but they didn't say, you can't do it. And it's just, just, it's a point disappointing when people go, Oh, yes, we're super accessible. And like you say, it's because they have a ramp. Yeah. And yeah. they've gone, it's only, only disabled people are people in wheelchairs. And, and we've ticked that box. Not yeah. even that. If, if an example, we, we had a conference. I speak about this a lot. Sorry, Wolfson College, Oxford, <laughs> to name and shame. Um, <laughs> We we held a conference for the Future Thinking Network a couple of years ago at Wilson College, Oxford, and I was coordinating a panel on visions of utopia and disability. So it was how visions of utopia eliminate disabled people from them. And we got a great panel together. We were told we had this fabulous, accessible, brand new lecture theatre. It did indeed have a wheelchair ramp. It had wheelchair access to everywhere apart from the stage. <laughs> No, <laughs> because that's awful. They couldn't actually conceive of someone in a wheelchair being a speaker as opposed to a member of the audience. It's, and that's the kind of thing I, th I think we see quite a lot is this imagining that even when it comes to running accessible events, it's all about how to make things work for the audience and not even considering that your keynote speaker might be disabled yeah. it's it's extraordinary i think that leads us nicely on to one of our points that we want to talk about how important it is to include the people it would affect in the decision making process whether that's for creating new courses whether that's for building new buildings whether it's for just having a general sweet ground in hr checking that you're accessible it only works if the people who it's going to affect are part of the decision making process yeah I agree. It's that kind of the disability activist slogan, nothing about us without us. Like we should always be involved in the conversation. Otherwise, you just wouldn't know. You know, even being someone with a disability, I wouldn't feel confident saying to an employer, just from my experience, oh, this is how you make a workplace accessible. I would tell them, go ask other people, go ask other people with different disabilities, because only then will you, there'll be things that you just would never have thought about. So another example for, an event that I experienced that wasn't particularly accessible. And again, it was around disability, which made it quite surprising, but it was an exhibition at 
think it was at the VNA for Frida Kahlo. Her art was on display. And I went there and you had a very specific time slot and I showed up and the queue was massive. So even though I turned up at my time slot, there was kind of a 40 minute wait to get in, no seating anywhere. And it was a, you know, an exhibition about someone who'd had chronic pain, who'd had mobility issues, and there was no consideration of oh, people coming to this might not want to queue for 40 minutes. And you might have kind of warned them about that. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely a need to to ask people and, and to go to people and ask them what they need. Um, only then are you going to be fully accessible. Yeah. Mm. It's that idea of being comfortable knowing that you don't know and therefore asking. And I think there's a big issue with, with people that the disabled community will call the abled community in assuming that they know and that they can do a good job and not realizing that even within the disabled community, I wouldn't be advocating for someone in a wheelchair because I do not use a wheelchair. I, I can't possibly think of all of the things that need doing it. I've worked some of the power riders I've worked with. I did advocate on their behalf during a competition when they had put the para stables for the horses the furthest away from the lorry park. And no one who was running these stables had thought that was a really stupid idea because a lot of those para riders do a lot with their horses, but at a big stairway competition that lasts four days, maybe they're going to have to use their wheelchair more because they've used up a lot of their energy. And actually them having to use their wheelchair means they can't get to the temporary stables on the grass. And that means they can't see their horse. Whereas if the horses were closer, they could probably get there with their sticks or their walker, or maybe someone could push their wheelchair a bit to get their stables, like 50, 15 meters max from the lorry park, which is all surfaced. And it's just that, that lack of thinking, you know, where they're like, oh, we would put them in the temporary stables by the lorry park. Yeah, but you didn't put them in the actual stables by the lorry park. You put them really far away. But that's the only time that I was felt I could advocate for my rider who was in a wheelchair because she told me. And then I could walk the other side of the stables to talk to the people running the stables because there was no way she could get there. You know, I, I can, I can confidently advocate on my own behalf and on people with similar issues. But like you said, Kat, even within the community, I can't, you can't advocate for other people because there are things you might not even think of that are super important. And I don't understand how people within the department running things think, especially if they don't have any conditions at all, how they feel like they can adequately create an accessible space or job or anything without asking the people who have the disabilities. I th yeah, I think I think I I'd say two things to that. The first of which is is probably something that, uh, again, to use the, the abled community well, they're both things they don't like to hear. And and the, the first is that that I think there are a lot of people who, who want to think that they're good people, but who would actually in practice really just rather we and, and have their fingers crossed every time they run something, hoping that a disabled person doesn't show up <laughs> because they would really rather not think about it. And they don't, it, that would make their lives easier. And I think this is this comes back to the utopias thing is, yeah. is actually yeah. a lot of people's ideal lives will be made easier by us not being there. So and I think the second problem, and this is something that comes up in in financial services when people say, why don't disabled people engage with us? Is a lot of people, if they do ask, they don't then want to listen. So things don't happen. So we disabled people in general, we have, we have a lot fewer resources than most people because 
because reasons. Um, and then we're made to do an awful lot of labor to explain what we need, which is okay. But then when someone doesn't listen to that and nothing happens as a result of it, it's very hard. You get very cynical by two or three times of this happening. And it then becomes, why, why don't people engage with you? Because if you've said things in the past and no one's listened, then, and it's, it's happened with the council in Oxford. As they were opening back up from the first lockdown last summer, they put together a, a, a working group with, with there, there were about 12 of us and representing disabilities of every nature. It was, it was really good. We had six sessions, two hours each. That's, that's 12 hours each of 12 people. Lots and lots and lots of suggestions. Literally none of them was put into action. So that's 12 hours of everyone's time that was given in good faith at great cost to no result. And, and I think that that's one, that's a real problem that has to be addressed is if you're going to ask, you then have to listen. And also, I think the way in which people ask, I think a lot of the time, unless you have a very good, for example, HR department in a workplace, mm. they'll say, well, what yeah. do you want? What do you need? Instead of like saying, this is what we can offer. And if there's something that maybe you, you need that we don't offer, then let us know, you know, which mm -hmm. I think is very workplace dependent. There are some jobs where I know where it's like, this is what we can give you. This is this, this is this, this is this. Which one would you like? Or which, which multiples would you like? But I think the majority of workplaces are still, oh, you need something. What is it? Tell us. And it's like, that's, that's shifting all of the effort, like Dan said, onto the disabled people. And often you don't know if you're going to put a lot of time and effort in, as Dan said, and then they're not going to give you anything or they're going to go, oh, we can't give you that. We can give you a nice chair. Yeah. It's like, great. <laughs> so helpful. That's, that's definitely what I wanted. You know, <laughs> it's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've, <laughs> I've been there. Um, yeah, I was going to say something really similar, you know, so much about disability adjustments. There's kind of two sides to it. You know, often it requires the disabled person to go do all the work. So you have to go reach out to someone, you have to find the right person to email, you have to know what to ask and, and what to ask for. But then, yeah, there's two aspects to it in a workplace, I think. So first of all, you shouldn't assume that everyone with a disability needs the same kind of requirements and adjustments. That's that's sometimes an issue in itself. So there is a sense that you should ask for individuals, what, what do you need for you specifically? But at the same time, as you say, Rebecca, that's challenging sometimes because you don't know what to ask for. You don't know what's on offer. You don't know what might help you and you don't know what they can do for you. So it's something I think, you know, at our university at Derby, they do quite well, our kind of well-being service and how they support students. Students will go to them if they have a disability or have any extra needs and the university will come up with a support plan for them. But a lot of the time when students talk to me, they go, oh, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what I need. I don't know what will help me. But the university has a list of things like, oh, we can give you extra time on assignments. If there's an exam, we can give you extra time. We can ask lecturers to not draw attention to it if you need to walk around or leave the room. It's, it's that kind of stuff. And so that's helpful too, to just have a list of things like this is what we can offer for you. And you can kind of select it as well as saying, oh, actually, something's not on this list that I would also benefit mm. from. I think also that fear of asking for stuff, mm. you go through your entire life feeling like you're putting people out and mm -hmm. that you're already a burden and you go, oh my God, you asked me what I want. Well, really, I want these five things, but I'm going to ask for two because I don't want you to feel like I'm putting you out, mm. which is a terrible thing to feel and you shouldn't <laughs> feel that way. But it's, it's, it's having an HR department 
or a, a well-being part of your university that says you can have all of this, yeah. you know, pick and choose. Nothing is too much because I know for a lot of people that feeling of you, even though you're not, that feeling that you're you're putting people out and you're maybe a bit of an extra burden. Yeah. It's it's it, yeah. It, it, it becomes part of the part of our masking. Yeah. Is, is pretending we can get by with less than we can because of because of it, and we're so used to being greeted with the eye yes. roll. <laughs> Um, or the or the sigh, um, and it's that as an HR department or as someone being asked for stuff, it's that first moment, the, the the first two seconds when you ask for something, you can never get that back. If you if you disclose something or say something to someone, and their first reaction is to to draw breath or to to shrug or to, to we 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 all know the kind of signals that they give off and and that are almost unconscious signals. Mm-hmm. But the moment that happens, you can never get that back because you know what what's going on underneath, what they really think. Um, mm. And so you have to get someone in, in that kind of role whose first reaction, as you said, Rebecca, is to, to say, yes, you can have all of it. Mm-hmm. What can we do? We want to give you we want to give you everything you need, not what do we have to give you? So it's what what can we give you? Not what do we have to give you, I think is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the phrasing is so vital, mm-hmm. you know, because as Dan said there, you know, what can we give you implies that you're just going to give it to them, you know, whereas what do we have to mm-hmm. is like, we don't want to. Yeah. You know? And that, that just makes such change. Like, I, I can't knock on doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous. And I tell people and people either go, that's silly. I'll have my door open when our meeting mm-hmm. happens. Or they're just like, why? That seems really stupid. And you're like, as if I don't know <laughs> that not being able to knock on doors is a really stupid thing to do. And I haven't spent my entire life trying to fix that. You know, it's, it's like, thank you people that go, sure, I'll just leave my door open, you know, or I'll come out at our meeting time and make sure that there's no closed doors. You yeah. Know? It's, yeah. But, it's like, I know it's stupid. But, but, but that like, comes back to the, to the thing about using as few resources as possible. Most people, you shouldn't have to think thank you so much to the person who leaves the door open because, <laughs> because it should most people don't have to be infinitely grateful that they're able to access day-to-day life. Mm. Shouldn't we shouldn't have to feel grateful every time someone does something that that just makes life livable for us. And yet we do. That's it's mm. really ingrained into us to be constantly grateful for just being able to breathe almost. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's, there's kind of two things I want to say about what you guys have just said. So first of all, you know, making sure that things are accessible automatically as much as possible. Obviously that isn't always possible because, you know, everyone has very different needs, but just kind of embedding it into events, venues, workplaces, just making it automatically accessible. So no one has to ask for it. No one has to say thank you because that's just how things are. And then what was it? I was going to say something else as well. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say it's sort of, one thing having accessibility adjustments and saying, oh, the Equality Act, we're following the law, we're following all the requirements. And then people at your workplace not having the right attitudes towards you, you know, or hearing lots of negative stereotypes about disability. And and not even the way people necessarily talk to you about your disability, because I think a lot of people wouldn't be Mm. explicitly you know, negative to you, to your face, but it's sometimes hearing how they talk about other people has just the same impact. So being in a meeting, you know, from personal experience where a manager said to me in confidence, you know, I don't tell anyone this, but yeah, it's really tough having this other employee work for us because we have to make all these adjustments. And I'm just sat there thinking, 
oh no, you could be talking about me right now. And my confidence levels just, you know, drop. So it's having that awareness of it's not just the way people talk to you and about your specific conditions, but it's the way they talk about other people and disability in general as well. And I think that's an interesting point. You know, it's saying it was difficult because of the disability. And I know a lot of people have been really pushing for more work from home mm. opportunities for years, saying the technology is there. Zoom existed before the <laughs> pandemic, everyone. You know, it existed. So did Microsoft Teams. I worked in Sweden in 2012 and we were doing video conferencing, you know, with Brazil from Sweden. You know, the, the technology was there. People saying it would be really helpful with my disability if I could maybe do a couple of days a week at home because that would make my life so much easier. I would have fewer flare-ups. If I had a bad day, I could just work from home and I can be just as productive from home as I could at the office, just with significantly fewer challenges. And everyone's like, oh, no, no, it's really important. You have to be here in person. You have to do this. You have to do that. No, we can't give you an accessible bit of tech to have at home so you can do stuff. And then suddenly the pandemic happens and all of, again, this is going to upset people, the abled community suddenly insist on needing to have good work from home things. They'll need a, a fancy chair at home or they'll need a good microphone or they're going to need an updated laptop so that it can have Zoom on. And suddenly nothing is too much. And that's brilliant that suddenly nothing is too much and everyone's got accessible software. But also, why couldn't we have it before Yeah, if we needed it or we wanted it? Like, it's a bit of a slap in the face. And I'm just very worried that post-pandemic, it's all going to go away. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it will all go away whilst people say we now understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and the other one is the, is people with, with the 20 pound uplift to universal credit. I mean, a, a in that in itself, but also people saying, and we can't possibly be expected to live on this for all the years that they were never there on the front line with us when mm. benefits were cut. It's, it's really, it just shows that you, we, we're not thought about. Mm. Yeah. I so agree with that. It's it's this kind of joy at finally everything opening up and us being able to do things digitally alongside that frustration and anger that, that a lot of these things just weren't thought about and considered before. You know, like really having to fight from working from home, uh, really having to fight for kind of being in digital meetings, for instance. So when I was in my previous job, or a previous job, I was allowed some time working at home, but not on the days where we had big meetings. And those big meetings were very early in the morning. So, you know, having to deal with a really busy commute and getting up very early. Um, but, but there was no adjustment for anyone wanting to dial into those meetings externally. I think other companies do that and have done that for a while, but certainly where I work, they hadn't. There was no consideration of oh, how can we adjust that? You know, some people being there in person, some people being there digitally, can we make that work? And they could. They just they just didn't because they weren't used to it. So it's quite nice that workplace practices are changing because of the pandemic, but yeah, I ha also have this fear that things are just going to completely go back to the way they were and people are going to pretend they, they sort of understand what disabled people are going through and what they need. But yeah, we're not going to have the same kind of access that we have right now. Mm. Like I, I have a chronic illness that flares up quite frequently. It's very annoying, but it, it's incurable, you know, it's with me forever. So I frequently have a week where I can't like leave my house, let alone get out of bed. And that's fine. That's normal for me. I have great sympathy with people who have significantly worse chronic conditions where three out of the four weeks in a month, they can't leave their house. You know, I, I have a fairly 
light level, you know, where I consider myself reasonably lucky in the way that in not being able to go and do stuff, I'm only affected like a quarter of the time as opposed to all of it. And it's very frustrating seeing people very early on in the pandemic, I think after about a month, when people were saying, oh, I can't, I can't live like this, you know, I can't go anywhere. It's been three weeks and I'm, I'm sitting there going, this is what people's lives are like, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And it's got worse and worse. And then people suddenly went, oh, now I really feel for all those people with chronic conditions who can't go anywhere. And it's like, yes, but you're still planning for when you can leave. You're, you're going, oh, I feel for you, but only in this time, knowing full well that it's temporary and that that temporary nature has had such a devastating effect on so many people's mental health for good reason, because it's horrible being trapped in your house because you're ill and you can't move, let alone if you're not ill. And it's that that sense of sort of entitlement to other people's experiences that you've only experienced passing through. You know, it's like if you broke an arm and a leg and you're in a wheelchair, you go, oh my God, accessibility is terrible because I can't get this wheelchair anywhere. And then six weeks later, you're out of the wheelchair and you're like, oh yes, when I was in my wheelchair, it was terrible, but now your life is fine. You know, it's, it's that sense of not realizing that this is people's lives, a lot of people's lives all of the time. And that you're just passing through very briefly on other people's constant perennial existence. I think that's. And I, I, I think we're seeing that now. We, and we saw it again last summer with people's unabashed joy at what they can now do. And it's for everyone for whom, well, no, we can't because this, as you say, this is our life. It really feels, it's almost like a demonstration of that, that the fact, lack of understanding. It's, it's like, yes, you were just passing through, weren't you? Bye. Because they're now off. They're making their plans. They're delighted at all the things they can do again that, that lots of people can't. Um, and I think to, to bring it back to the workplace, one of the things I, I remember saying in meetings back in last February, March was what's going to be much harder than what we think about at the start of this is, is how we deal with things as restrictions ease because that's when disabled people are going to be left behind. And the reaction was that what it always is at that point, which is, yes, 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 we of course we won't forget. Of course we will take that into account. And then there's almost an institutional forgetting. It's, there's a, he's a really problematic author, but there's a really wonderful Kundera book, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which is about institutional forgetting in Cold War Czechoslovakia and how the way that these promises are made and, and they're, they're made in all sincerity and then and then they're just sort of, they disappear on the wind. But if you come back and say, but you didn't do what you said, it's, oh, it, it's just not there in people's heads. Of course we, of course we do. We said we'd take it seriously and we are taking it and, and, and yet... <laughs> I don't know any better way of putting it other than that as we come out of restrictions, the fact that people are being left behind and furlough has been a really good example of, of how income gaps, for example, and accessibility gaps have been exacerbated. Um, the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute had a, an income gap survey last year, which showed what we know that um, if you've got anxiety or depression, you'll earn 68p in the pound for people who don't. And a lot of workplaces have made loads of stuff available to anyone who's on furlough or to anyone who has to work from home during the pandemic. 
Um, so there have been all sorts of training opportunities, all sorts of acting up opportunities. But if you're disabled, you can't take those opportunities. So it's basically been an accelerator for abled people's CVs to run away from us and to mean that two, three years down the line, when everyone's applying for jobs, their CVs are going to look so much better than ours. So that in, that's how income gaps and that's how long-term career differences get perpetuated. Yeah, it's it's again, I think it's that people not empathizing and thinking outside of themselves and thinking, this is a great idea. Does it cover everyone? Or do they just go, what a brilliant idea, let's run with this, instead of sort of thinking it all the way through. And again, back to that thing we said at the beginning, including the people who it's going to affect in those decisions. Because there's plenty of things that, that you could potentially have your disabled people participate in if there were some adjustments that were made, if they took a little bit more time to sort it so that they could participate, that they haven't even considered. And then as that disabled person in that organization, are you going to feel confident enough to speak up and say, I'd really like to do this, but you haven't made it accessible? Especially in a time when they're like, we're pushing accessibility. Everyone's working from home. We're doing all of this. People feel bad about asking for more. And I think that goes back to, to Dan's thing, like you shouldn't be grateful for people just being decent human beings. You know, <laughs> that should be the yeah. base lay. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I think we, we, we've, we've all had the answer during this. Don't you know there's a pandemic on? Mm. Emergency, so emergency times call for emergency measures. Therefore, we have to ditch niceties. Mm. Accessibility has been seen as a nicety. Mm. And because we're now in emergency times, we, can get, we, we don't have to think about that. It's as though people mm. think the Equality Act has been suspended mm. because we're now in emergency times. And I know that if Liz Truss had her way, it will be got rid of. And I'm not sure that I'm confident that we will have an Equality Act by the time of the next election, but we do at the moment. So, yeah, we, it should be a matter of course still. Yeah. 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 So agreed. And I think, you know, back to what we were saying a little bit earlier about people having this experience of being shut inside and not being able to go out and being able to, you know, having limited interactions with other people, they now think they understand what it's like to have a disability. And Rebecca, you were saying about how it, you know, it's a temporary thing and it's a, it's a very different thing when you know this is your life forever. You have to adjust your life forever in this way. And that can be really difficult and that can have a lot of grief involved with it. But I think there's also something that people forget about going through the pandemic right now and being shut in at home is a really collective experience. So people feel a lot more empathy for each other. You know, oh, I understand this is a difficult time. I understand it's hard to be at home because I'm feeling that too. But that empathy doesn't exist. And I think, well, that is something that I will struggle with, that empathy not really existing after we move back to normal, back towards normal if that happens not understanding that individuals are still going through that, even though collectively we're not anymore. And the other thing that gets missed a lot of the time, you know, people say, oh, I understand what it's like now to be at home, blah, blah, blah. But with disability, that being trapped at home and not being able to go out also is accompanied by sometimes a lot of pain and a lot of like really awful things, like, you know, being really unwell and not being able to do much in general. And that's often forgotten in the conversation too. You know, it's not just that we can't, go out as often or can't do things as often it's also that we're in a lot of pain and, and there's a struggle that is forgotten about there too yeah and that i think comes into the workplace setups and accommodations that can be made so like you say kat you know the the chance to work from home half of your week doesn't impact your productivity doesn't impact the quality of your work it only impacts sort of 
people not thinking you're working. And that mm-hmm. already, yeah. as, as a disabled person, people already think you're not going to be working as well as other people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can work better from home. Because if yeah. I need to get out of bed when I'm having a flare-up, my desk is like three feet away. I can do that. I can't get in my car, drive to the station, get on a train, walk across London. I can't do that on a flare-up day. So I'll have to use a sick day, which is fine because I'm fully for using sick days. But I'm going to need more sick days mm. because I get flare-ups for a chronic condition. That means I can't get out of bed. <laughs> but I could probably get out of bed and get in my chair and work, you know, from home. Yeah. So... There's that strange sort of twistiness for a lot of disabled people who could work more and more productively and better from home because they're not wasting their energy on a bad day, doing a load of traveling, getting somewhere, like you say, getting somewhere for a meeting really early in the morning, which for some people is so hard, regardless of Mm -hmm. what kind of disability you've got. That can be ridiculously hard. Or if being out in public creates a lot of stress for you, you can do it. But it would be easier if you didn't have to, but you can. And people saying you have to do this every single day because we prefer it is it's that kind of that attitude. I think that that's very stressful in a workplace setup where it would be so easy to say, yeah, just work from home three days a week. It's not a problem. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one really good thing from the pandemic is that people recognize working from home. You can do more and not for everyone some people don't feel as productive at home but you're not at home messing about being lazy you can actually be more productive because you don't have that commute and i'm seeing a lot of people obviously talking about concentrating less during the pandemic and not being able to work as much which is you know i think a very common thing but for me i'm being so much more productive because i don't have to get up at a certain time i don't have to use public transport so I am kind of desperately trying to do as much work as I can now, knowing that in a few months' time, things will go back to normal and I'm going to have to give a big chunk of energy towards traveling and, and getting up at certain times. And I think that's some, another thing people forget about accessibility. It helps disabled people, but it also helps everyone. So it's that idea of you know wide pavements and ramps helping wheelchair users, but also people with pushchairs or people with temporary illnesses. And flexibility at work helps everyone. You know, I think... Everyone works better at different times of the day, for instance. Why do we have a nine to five still? Why do we need one? You know, put meetings if you need them right in the middle of the day and otherwise let people start and finish when they need to. You know, maybe people with young children need to work maybe really early in the morning and not so much in the evenings. Why aren't we at the place where we are all able to adjust our work around our lives? You know, it feels crazy that we're that this far into working and, and we're not adjusting our work-life balance properly still. I think everyone wants more of that. And that's not just for disabled people. I think that, that sounds like I'd really like to ask Kat about publishing because that feels like a, it feels like it's got a lot to say about that as an issue because one of the real problems with publishing in both America and in the UK before the pandemic was the fact that it was, its problems are so intersectional. And one of those intersections was around class and geography. It was a big thing. Publishing in America had to be in New York. Publishing in the UK had to be in London. And if you even suggested change or remote working, you were told that publishing was just one of those industries that had to be like that because you have to do lunches. And that that seemed literally to be the the the, the rationale um, is that is there are just some industries that are like that because you have to do lunches. 
and you have to do those things in person. And <laughs> I'd love to know if Kat thinks that that is going to, whole industries are going to change as a result of realising that you don't have to or whether you think they will actually become more entrenched. Oh, that's such a hard question. I think I hope <laughs> they will change. Um, yeah, that that kind of um, assumption is definitely really widespread, certainly from my time working in publishing. It is all about networking, who sees you, who knows what you're doing, who knows what you're up to. It's all about, for me, I was a publicist. So it was about taking journalists for lunches and breakfasts. You know, but it's also for editors taking agents out for lunches. It's, it's all about having these relationships. And I think historically that was never done virtually, uh, really, unless you were talking to someone abroad, perhaps. It's always kind of prioritized the in-person interaction. In terms of the future, I don't know. I think it, it always comes back to the people in power who are making the decisions and what what they think is good for the company and their kind of limited view of the world. Because I think certainly when I worked in publishing, I heard about senior people's priorities and opinions on things. And they were very against working from home. They didn't think it was good. They wanted a, a kind of a workplace office culture. And they were also very against having offices or having kind of quiet spaces you could go to. So we have these big, really open plan offices that are meant to be really collaborative, but they're incredibly noisy. And there's a lot of like stimulation going on. That That's not good for everyone. So I think it, it really requires people high up in senior positions to recognize that change is needed and that different working conditions are there for different people. And I just, I don't, I don't know exactly how we can put pressure on the people in power to make change. Yeah. And that, that's something we, we've had in Oxford. It's communications that come out from senior people who are trying to sound empathetic show when they start with things that this is terrible. I'm so looking forward to when I can have six people in my garden or um, th th things that show they lead the kind of lifestyle where, because the, the problem with jobs like publishing and the problem with jobs like administration at universities is that the places you work, you can't afford to be. So therefore they become, there becomes an, an economic and a class divide because you just can't afford to work in those places because the rents are too high and senior people don't have high rents or can afford to pay high rents. Uh, so those just aren't issues for them. And I don't think it even occurs to them. They know it's a problem on paper, but I think that's a, a level of empathy that they still they still lack. And I think, as you say, in, until, until we can put pressure on them to do the right thing, do the right thing without understanding it. And I think this is something that we come across with disability activism a lot is sometimes you have to believe us. You don't understand mm. what we're saying. You think that what we're saying is absolutely ridiculous. Like you were saying, Rebecca, with not being able to open the doors. And I have this with, with not being able to use the telephone. We know it sounds ridiculous, but believe us, even though don't, don't, don't ask us why constantly. Mm. Don't, mm -hmm. don't try and understand, just accept. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? And just it's for me, it's it's always as well that that stereotype of laziness, like saying you can't do something or that you know you're not physically capable of it. People just assuming that you're lazy and you're not willing to work hard when in fact you have to work really hard every day just to do the same things that other people do. I, I find that really frustrating. But yeah, that that kind of idea of 
really listening to disabled people and respecting them. That's just, that's crucial. Yeah. That kind of leads in nicely to the idea of accessible job applications, where, like you say, Kat, it's a lot of work for us, a lot of people, to just do what everyone else does ordinarily. Like Dan said right at the beginning when he defined accessibility in in like eight words. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) The idea on a job application, a lot of them are now you have to fill out a form online as opposed to just sending someone your CV in a covering letter, which is quite easy because you've spent your time, you've made your CV, you've done your covering letter, you email it to someone, done. Now it's a lot of forms and you have to often create accounts to log into these places with recruitment agencies in order to even send the stupid form. Then you get to the form and you start filling out the form and it wants all your details. You're like, this is already on my CV. This is, this is really annoying. And you fill it out and you get to like the third page and there's suddenly declaring disabilities. You're like, oh, how fantastic. They're telling me to declare my disabilities and you click it and it's a drop down and you can pick one. (laughs) And it's not even a very long list. It's like eight things that you're allowed to have and you can have one of those things. (laughs) I have two of these things. And then you go, well, being really cynical, they're asking this because it's part of their inclusivity, you know, because they need to have a certain number of, of these people included as part of their workforce. And you go, well, is it going to do me better to do, I've got a chronic life impacting illness or do I go, I've got a mental illness? Which one's going to tick the box better? That means I'm going to get through to the next phase. And then you sit there going, why am I having to pick between my own disabilities (laughs) in order to try and work the system to get me an interview at which I'm going to have to tell them about the other one because both of them impact my life and how I do my work. And by that point, I often give up because I'm like, if this is like the third page, what's the fourth page going to be? How many pages are there that I have to fill out these stupid checkboxes? Mm-hmm. I have to write all this stuff in order for them to probably not pay any attention to it and probably just dump my CV anyway because I've missed a keyword for them or actually they've filled their quota of disabled people and I'm a disabled person and We've already got our three people in our company. We don't need any more. Get rid of all of them. I mean, I don't think that's what happens. But as a person who's filling out one of those forms, it kind of feels a bit like that with all the stupid drop downs. It's it's just it makes it so hard to even apply for a job, let alone declare a disability. And it it used to be much easier, you know, send your CV and covering letter to this email address, which was much more. I personally think I may be wrong. I feel that's more inclusive than having pages and pages of forms for people to fill out, especially if digital literacy isn't high on your list of skills and maybe you're applying for a job that doesn't require any digital literacy, that's shutting you out of a whole number of people Mm. that would be amazing at your job, but you've made it impossible for them to apply, which drives me mad. Yeah, This is literally about being able to produce a, a single PDF pack for the selection panel. And I think disengagement is what you brought up there a lot of us just disengage at that point because it's just too hard and this is another of my pet beefs with with recruiters when people want us how can we do recruitment better i know what let's find all the disabled people in in our organization and ask them what they found hard about recruitment and i tried to say no it's not your constituency your constituency is all the people who didn't apply mm-hmm. oh no that's just too hard and it's like, <laughs> Stop pretending you want to improve your recruitment process then and admit that you don't care enough to try. We have to find out what's stopping people applying, not Mm. from the people who already managed to get through the the hoops somehow. 
Yeah, mm. I think it's it's really complex as well because you know on the first hand the sort of things we've been talking about about just making forms accessible, making sure that they're, they're the right kind of drop downs. That's kind of the basic level, isn't it? And then I think we get to another level where it's around kind of the wording in job apps even and how off putting that can be. I think, you know, when I worked at Penguin, we were starting work on that, thinking about, you know, people from working class backgrounds coming into the industry, or people who weren't, you know, from London, et cetera, and how they approach the job ad and think think about how it relates to them. But it, it's kind of words like fast-paced environment, high pressure. Words like that can be really off-putting to people if they don't quite know what you mean by that. So I think, you know, thinking about the wording really carefully and how that might come across, you know, sometimes... It is a requirement and you have to include it because it's important um, and you have to sort of warn people that's what this job includes. It is a very fast paced job. But you have to think, is that absolutely necessary to include? And there are other examples, for instance, you know, needing to drive a car that's often on a job advert as a as a requirement, but there's no detail on where you're going to have to drive, like why you're going to need a car. They just, sometimes it just sort of seems a bit arbitrary. Or for me, once I was applying for a digital marketing job. And then on the job ad, it said heavy lifting required. And I thought, what? <laughs> How? And I found out later, <laughs> I got the job anyway, but I think that would have put a lot of people off. I found out it was because they wanted to print leaflets and have someone to drive them to events. So you have to drive and you have to be able to lift heavy boxes of leaflets. But of course, that shouldn't really be a requirement for a digital marketing job. So there, there was an idea there you're just excluding loads of people because they're not going to be able to physically do that. Or a job that I, I had once where they asked to kind of bring a laptop into the office because they didn't have a computer available. I can't carry a laptop to an office on public transport. That's physically not possible for me. Um, so all these kind of requirements, I think being really clear on what you actually really need because you're going to put people off if you include that in a job ad and it's actually not that important. Yeah. And... and it goes with things like enthusiasm and team playing and things that for, for neurodivergent people would be really, really hard. And it was still until until a couple of weeks ago, it was still on the on Oxford University's training for recruitment panelists that, that they should pay really good attention to to positive eye contact and a good handshake and things like this that are just completely would, would uh, ruin so many people out on um, such a ridiculous and arbitrary and, basis as well at yeah. what point does you yeah. having good eye contact mean you're going to be good at doing your job like well <laughs> yeah but, yeah I, all that, that's just so a publishing thing as well you know like dan was saying earlier about that kind of like meeting people even if you're not in a kind of public facing or people facing role there is an expectation that you're still good at socializing and that you're good at talking to other people that's not always important for every role and there is a i think just a general assumption in interviews that body language and eye contact and being able to express enthusiasm and passion that all counts more than a lot of other things. I've, I've seen interviews where the person who was enthusiastic got the job over the person who had better qualifications or had a kind of, you know, more appropriate history. Mm. That Those things are, are really prioritised and that that really disadvantages a lot of people. I think I think qualifications as well, we need to be careful mm. with this. Yeah. It's been the default for a long time to, to just say a certain grade of job you require O-levels or GCSEs, I should say, I shouldn't age myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> a certain type of job you require an undergraduate degree, a certain type of job you require a master's degree. And 
until you're confident that that all groups are equally represented in those qualifications, that's it's like the, the dictionary definition of indirect discrimination to require qualifications that some people find harder to get than others, even mm-hmm. though they might be able to do the actual job. And that's that's what Kat said about what do you actually need this person to do and can they do it, not what proxies they might yeah. have for it. Yeah. And it, it, that also it just makes me think about CV gaps, which drives mm-hmm. me just ah, um, asking people, why is there a gap in your CV? Yeah. I just feel like let's get rid of that question and never ask anyone that ever again, because you are, you're making them reveal something personal. And that, you know, you, if you as the person answering that question says, oh, no, I'm not comfortable answering that. That does that makes it look like it's something really bad. And then you don't yeah. know, oh, but then I have to disclose a disability or a time I was in hospital. And then yeah. that just gets very complicated. So I would personally just love to get rid of that question altogether and just make it not an issue. I mean, we we, we have, that's one of the few things at Oxford, we, we, we have got rid of that, I hope. Certainly, certainly anywhere where I am, they, they, people have had their, People had some some rather askance looks for asking, it, but it does. It's you still get it in academia with publications, mm. and we've we've all been through the ref recently, and people being hired because they are because they are refable because their publications list. And it's something I've come across is once you are in a post, they adjustments can be made for the fact that your your publications list might not look perfect. But if you're going into an interview where the requirement is for your publications to be then used as a metric in the ref, you then, again, you're having to disclose at an early stage that you might not be comfortable with why that might be in order to get something that if they were to just give you the job would be given to you as a matter of course. And it's the questions about when we disclose and when we're we're able to give this personal information that that you're not asking about anyone else. That That's... But it comes back to, again, no one else in this interview is having to say intimate details about their personal medical history. And yet we are in order to gain the same access. Mm. I mean, my my normal day job, which is not very busy at the minute because there's a pandemic. I work in the equestrian industry. I'm a, I'm a freelance coach, rider, sometimes groom if I can be bothered these days, which I can't because I'm old now and it hurts. Um, but uh, I find the equestrian industry is is very, very good on the accessibility front for people who are interested in horses. The amount of apprentices that I've taught that have had a variety of disabilities that mean that they are actually really good at doing their job, or maybe they're just a bit slower, but you know what? They're doing their job. It's fine. They're like, can you muck out? No, we'll teach you. You don't need any qualifications to the point that now if people go to college and they have a college qualification for a horse job, a lot of people don't want them because they're not actually very good because it's mental as opposed to practical experience. And they'd rather have the 17-year-old apprentice who's learning on the job than the 17-year-old who started college who's learning how to mark out a stable from a textbook. And the idea that I've yet to see uh, a job where having a disability impacts at all. The number of grooms that I know who don't ride because they've got a bad back, they've got bad hips, they, they don't ride. There's like, that's fine. We'll just get a rider as well as a groom. It's, it's, it's like, we love you for this job. We think you'd make a great head girl. Be our head girl. Yeah, you don't ride. Doesn't matter. We can, we can find another rider, you know, or just the fact that there's a variety of neurodivergent people who I've, I've worked with and who I have coached as apprentices who are so good at the job. You just have to know where their neurodivergence is so that when you give tasks, you make sure that you're specific. There's an amazing girl at a, at a dressage yard 
who was fantastic if she knew exactly what she was doing. So you said, I want you to mark out this horse, this horse, this horse, and this horse, and do their waters and empty their feed buckets and come get me if you, if you finish before anyone else. And I've never seen such beautifully marked out stables in my life at speed, you know, better to be honest than a lot of the other girls who were kind of just dossing around because a lot of people do that when you're 16. I mean, <laughs> if you don't have to, why? But it's, it's just being told as someone going in as a cover of a head girl that she's autistic and she's fantastic. Just make sure you give her really good instructions and really clear instructions. You won't have a single problem. And so I went, sure, this, 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 brilliant, no problems. For the whole like month that I covered there, she was fantastic to work with. And there's literally no reason why she couldn't have that job. But if you move that into a supermarket role or a distribution role, how well is that going to go? Because everyone's going to go, oh, neurodivergent. Oh, that makes them hard to work with. Oh, whereas we're more focused on that horse is really difficult. You have to lead it on the wrong side and you have to put this head collar on it. Otherwise, it's really stupid. Horse people don't care, you know, like in a really positive kind of way. Like we're so used to dealing with difficult, weird horses that this one only eats out of a blue bucket because it's weird, you know. It's fine. It needs to eat. It gets the blue bucket, you know. <laughs> we, we, I feel like the equestrian industry has the mentality that accessibility and inclusivity, you do it because why would you not do it? Which I, I want more in all the other roles, you know. Yes. It's, it's really in interesting that the, the banking industry is another one that I would never have pegged at this, that, that's actually really, really good at it not necessarily with their customers, but it within their workforce. And you would never think that. And being having sat on really senior committees where there are members of the medical community and members of the, the regulatory group that includes companies like Wonga. And the representative from Wonga shows more empathy for disabled people than the senior representative of the British Medical Association. And this, this is just wrong somehow. It, it, it plays with your head. Um, but yes, yeah, so you, you can find pockets of excellence in places you really don't expect it. And I think that's, mm. that's something that we can take away and, and, and try and learn from. Yeah. So it's more about kind of attitudes and workplace culture and adjusting, adjusting those, which can be a challenge when they're really widespread. And I think that is a, a problem in publishing, really. It's, it's that, you know, having time and space to be able to sort of adjust things and do things a bit differently just isn't that possible when everyone is so busy and so stressed out and so overworked and working really, really long hours and exhausted. It's just, it's hard to then go to that person and say, oh, I need you to take a bit of time and, you know, adjust how you're doing things a little bit for this person. It's just, it doesn't feel possible to them. So there's, I think there's lots of things around workplace culture in general that needs to change to, to help everyone, but especially disabled people. Yeah. We've, we've come to the end of our lovely time. Wow, that was fast. I know, I just looked at the time. <laughs> this has been fabulous. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been fabulous. Thank you. Our time absolutely flew by when we recorded this. And we had so much to talk about before and after the recording that we've decided that there will be a part two of this later on in the year. I hope you found it really interesting. And please chat with us on Twitter. I'll pop Kat, Dan, my own personal as well as the At Shelf Healing Twitter accounts in links in the show notes. 
We, we would absolutely love to chat with you about this on, on Twitter this week, next week, whenever you, you'd like. Kat has got her really interesting research project on disability and publishing. Dan is always doing fantastic advocacy work across his many platforms. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this, such an important topic, that combination of accessibility and disability. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. I hope it's been interesting and thought-provoking. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another Work and Life episode. So until then, thanks to Nicholas Patrick for our music and to Lucas Montgomery for our transcripts. I'll be back in two weeks with another.